So we start with Proverbs 24, verse 11, and I'm going to read through verse uh, 22. I think that's where I want to go. I don't know that we'll get through 22. Uh, Yeah, but we'll uh, read through verse 22. It says, Deliver those who are drawn toward death, And hold back those stumbling to the slaughter. If you say, surely we did not know this, does not he who weighs the hearts consider it? He who keeps your soul, does he not know it? And will he not render to each man according to his deeds? My son, eat honey because it is good, and the honeycomb, which is sweet to your taste, so shall the knowledge of wisdom be to your soul. If you have found it, there is a prospect, and your hope will not be cut off. Do not lie in wait, O wicked man, against the dwelling of the righteous. Do not plunder his resting place, for a righteous man may fall seven times and rise again, but the wicked shall fall by calamity. Do not rejoice when your enemy falls, and do not let your heart be glad when he stumbles, lest the Lord see it and it displease him. And he turn away his wrath from him. Do not fret because of evildoers, nor be envious of the wicked, for there will be no prospect for the evil man. The lamp of the wicked will be put out. My son, fear the Lord and the king. Do not associate with those given to change, for their calamity will rise suddenly. And who knows the ruin that those two can bring? Amen. Okay, so uh, we're going to take especially verses 11 and 12, and then 13 and 14, um, and if we have time, we'll take 15 and 16 together as well. So uh, maybe your Bible has them divided up like that, uh, where uh, 11 and 12 are kind of paragraphed together, 13 and 14 are paragraphed together, and 15 and 16 are as well, as are 17 and 18 is... These couplets, as you might call them, are, are pretty obvious. Um, let's look at the first one uh, a little more closely. Uh, it's not as straightforward as some proverbs, at least to me. Maybe it was to you, and you're smarter than me. That's not uh, very unlikely. Uh, but verses 11 to 12, right? So it's calling on us to deliver those who are drawn to death. The um, King James says, if thou... Forbear, meaning if you will, to deliver them that are drawn to death. The ESV says, rescue those who are being taken away to death. So because this is framed as a, uh, as a it ends in a, a period, it's a uh, indicative, right? A command, basically. Deliver those who are drawn to death and hold back those that are stumbling to their to the slaughter. So it's it's calling us to look on people who are in situations that maybe they don't quite understand the outcome of it, right? They are stumbling. They are um, being drawn towards something, right? This is very much a picture of the consequences of sin or the consequences of a decision that we might not uh, fully grasp the implications of. But like Paul says in uh, Galatians 6, uh, you who are spiritual, right? You who are being given these proverbs, you can see these who are 
drawn to death, these who are stumbling towards the slaughter. And you know that God's command for you is to deliver them and to hold them back. Um, Now, what this is calling on us to do is to perform that which is just and to help those who, in some sense, cannot help themselves. Uh, Paul says this idea in Galatians 6 to save the one who is um, basically falling into temptation, but be careful lest you burn yourself with the uh, sin itself, right? Unless you fall into temptation, right? We pray in the Lord's Prayer, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So when you're, you're looking at verses 11 and 12, what you're considering is the fact that this is a person in your life or a person that you know quite well, right? that you would have an opportunity to discern what was actually happening. Right? Not someone that you just pass by and you perceive something bad is happening, but it's really not. I'm not saying to dismiss emergencies, but this is the Proverbs very often draw us to this normal state of being, right? And verse 12 helps you kind of see this because God says, if you say we didn't know, does not he who weighs the heart consider it? Meaning, will not I realize, will not I know as God that you were lying, that you did know, right? So, so this addresses a very narrow circumstances, Not, if you hear about some child in Japan who is starving, hop on a plane and fly across the world and feed him and hope your family's okay while you're gone. That's not what's being said here. Or if you hear about these murders being committed on the other side of the world, you know, I'm going to pray for my family while I'm gone, but I'm going to go help this person. That's not the idea that's going on here. It's more narrow and more close to home. You're seeing this person and you understand that they're being drawn towards death. You're understanding that they are uh, stumbling towards the slaughter. And you could also think of this uh, very common relationship would be like a husband looking on his wife, parents looking on their children, um, aging, uh, let's see, um, younger children looking towards their parents where you have this special role in caring towards, uh, caring for them. Um, Superiors towards inferiors is kind of the idea I have. Uh, And also, um, like magistrates or or governors or uh, presidents or prime ministers and and those who are under their care, they're to look on their people that they see in front of them and not permit them to be drawn towards death. In fact, to hold them back. They're to lead in such a way because what God is calling them to do is to um, live in a just way fashion, right? Because that's why he says, you know, it's not just like, oh man, you forgot to help him. No, the the last bit there in verse 12 is, will he not render to each man according to his deeds? So this is looking on a situation where you can definitely do something about it, right? Where you have the authority to enact this change or this aid, and God sees uh, a neglect of justice, Um. Matthew Henry draws a parallel to, uh, you know, we often fear men more than we fear God, even in situations like this. And part of the reason we won't help people that that we can help, even if it's uh, within our own family, um, is because we're afraid of what other people might say. Um, 
And he says, he pointed to Luke 12, verses 4 and 5, which says, I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, and after that have no more that they can do. I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has power to cast into hell. Yes, I say to you, fear him. Right? God sees the neglect of justice, not just men. God is the one who can do uh, ultimately anything, or ultimately he can do something about it. And God is greater than man. Matthew Henry also addresses making excuses because, I, I, you know, I kind of brought up, you know, caring for people that we could care for. But I, I want to draw it as close to home as possible uh, with a verse like 1 Timothy 5, verse 8. And I'll, I'll read it for you. You can write it down or try to flip there or whatever. It's just one verse, so you might as well just listen. 1 Timothy 5, 8, it says, But if anyone does not provide for his own... Especially those for, um, especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith, and is worse than an unbeliever. Now, the reason I bring that verse up is because so many people will read a passage like Proverbs twenty-four verses eleven and twelve, and basically take it in a way that contradicts First Timothy five to eight, or First Timothy five eight. Right? You think, or we're tempted to think, well, this is calling me to look outside of my home. Right? But that's not the ultimate point. It could be where you have time and ability to look outside your home. But the point is they're not a contradiction. That your children are uh, those who could be drawn towards death or be stumbling towards the slaughter and you could hold them back. You could deliver them. That, that almost sounds like the words that Paul uses when he talks about parenting, right? to raise them up in the, the nurture and admonition, right? the care and the instruction. You could call it the deliverance and the defense, right? holding them back and delivering them from those things. Right? And Matthew Henry says, it's easy to make such an excuse uh, that would help us avoid the censures of men, the, the critique of men. For perhaps they cannot disprove us when we say we knew it not or we forgot. Meaning, like, you know, a man points out or a woman points out, hey, you forgot to do this, and you could tell that person, well, you know, I just forgot. And they, they have no way of proving you wrong, right? They can't read your mind. They can't read your heart. But he says God can. He says the temptation to tell a lie for the excusing of a fault is very strong when we know that it is impossible to be disproved, though the truth is lying wholly in our own breast. He says, we thought so-and-so and really designed it, which no one is conscious of but ourselves. But then he says about God, it is not so easy with such excuses to evade the judgment of God. And to the discovery of that, we lie open. And by the determination of that, we must abide. Meaning, it ultimately doesn't matter... What men think of your care of other men, because if you are pleasing God, if you are doing what God would see as good, then you're going to be doing right by men who understand the truth anyway. You see, this need for justice to be carried out can't come from injustice being created. And this is kind of what I was bringing up earlier when I was talking about flying across the world to do a good work, all the while neglecting your good works that you're required to do at home, right? The need for justice cannot come from injustice being created. Meaning, you can't choose one good thing and neglect your duties. 
right? If you have to turn from your duties to do something, you don't do it, right? Unless you can find a way to complete your duties and do that work that you feel compelled to do anyway, right? 1 Timothy 5, 8, again, if anyone does not provide for his own, especially for those of his household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. I think you can also see this idea in the Good Samaritan. I preached on that a few Sunday evenings ago. And the, the point about the Good Samaritan is it's not that, uh, you know, you have to go somewhere to find your neighbor. Your neighbor's right here, right? Who proved to be the good neighbor, right? The good person in that passage to uh, the man who was uh, cast into the ditch and beaten up? Well, it was the Samaritan. The Samaritan didn't go across the planet to find this man. He was simply walking down the road. The good deed was right in front of him. Right? He didn't have to, to conjure up some, some good works. The Lord brought them right to him. And that's the case for so many areas of life that we are uh, a bit dissatisfied and bored with the routine that God has given us. So we try to come up with something more exciting. Right? When God has put so much work right at our fingertips for us to do for our families, within our congregations, our communities, and all those things. Um, you see, this, this proverb is drawing before us, these two proverbs is helping us to think about uh, those who have the ability to do good, doing it towards whom they can. Right? If you don't have the ability to do that, that's fine. Right? But if you do... Uh, you should carry it out. And who is the ultimate example of the one who had the ability to do good for those who were drawn towards death and stumbling towards the slaughter? Well, it's the Lord Jesus. Listen to these words in Hebrews 2, verses 14 to 18. I don't know if I set the proverb, uh, these two proverbs up well enough for you to understand it, but I, I, this was the overall point I wanted to make, that caring for others those whom God has given us, is much like what Christ did. Hebrews 2, verses 14 to 18 says, For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, meaning the children of the Father, he also himself took part in the same. So Jesus took flesh and blood, like the children of God, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil, and to deliver them, Proverbs twenty four eleven, deliver those, to deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. Wherefore in all things it behooved him to be made like his brethren, so that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest. Right? This is the call of Proverbs 24, 11, and 12, to be merciful to those whom God has given you to be merciful. In all these things it behooved him to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is also able to relieve them that are tempted. So verses 11 and 12, deliver those who are drawn towards death, hold back those who are stumbling to the slaughter. If you say this, surely we did not know, 
Does not he who weighs the hearts consider it? He who keeps your soul, does he not know it? And will he not render to each man according to his deeds? Let me use an example. As I, I want to read that Galatians passage to you that I kept referencing so we can have it in our minds before we move on. But a sad example I see of an unbalanced view of this so often is men in the ministry. Oh, excuse me. Men in the ministry where they devote more time, an unbalanced amount of time to the ministry, to the neglect of their family. So many pastors are totally disqualified because of the state of their home. But they would blame the state of their home on how much work they do for the church rather than trying to have a balanced perspective. You know, some part of it's on the church, some part of it's on the pastor. But if you have an imbalanced approach to these things, you're, I mean, you're going to miss the boat. Right? It's both and, not either or. Right? And it's, it doesn't say pastor deliver those who are drawn to death. It's a call for all of us, for all of us who have been given people uh, to care for and to extend mercy to. Uh, the passage in Galatians 6 is uh, verses 1 through <clears throat> uh, 5. It says, Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass... You who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Let each one examine his own work, and he will have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another, for each one shall bear his own load. So if a man is overtaken in a, a fault, a trespass, you who are spiritual, Restore them in a spirit of gentleness. Right? Because the implication in Proverbs 11, or 24, 11, is that if you don't deliver them, they're going to die. If you don't uh, hold them back, they're going to stumble into the slaughter. And you have the ability to help them in this. Not to help everybody, but you can look on certain people in your lives that God has provided and help those whom he's put in front of you. In verses 13 and 14, they go together. Uh, some Bibles make this more clear than others, uh, where they very graciously put a, uh, instead of a period at the end of verse 13, they'll put something like a semicolon or uh, maybe even a colon, depending on the translation, um, to show you that the thought carries on. Because right? if you have a period there, sometimes it can make you think that it doesn't, especially in a book like Proverbs. But notice the contrast. It says, my son, eat honey because it is good. Do y'all like honey that much? Yeah. Yeah. Eat honey because it is good. And the honeycomb, which is sweet to your taste, so shall the knowledge of wisdom be to your soul. If you have found it, there's a prospect and your hope will not be cut off. Um, the ESV starts verse uh, 14, know that wisdom is such to your soul. Right? So the comparison is just as honey is to the taste, so wisdom, the knowledge of wisdom is to the soul. Let me introduce a, a concept to you. Maybe you've heard of it before. I know Sam is probably familiar with it, and some of you have probably heard of it as well. Um, but the Lord often sets out uh, in his word uh, two um, 
a popular term to use is to enchant our thinking. To enchant our thinking on matters that fall before us in the world. Uh, if you Google like uh, enchantment, Christianity, those kind of things, it'll pull up all kind of articles because it's a kind of a, a popular thing to talk about right now. Um, one of the theories is that the world has been disenchanted because of Protestantism. And you, you kind of get where it's going with that. But that the Reformation led to disenchantment. But that's crazy. Uh, anyway, uh, but what is enchantment, right? What does it mean for God to uh, enchant our thinking, right? Um, maybe you younger ones have read like some fictional books where... Uh, there's some magic involved, and the word enchant or enchantment uh, comes to mind. Right? Maybe you think of that. But enchantment, it, it can be thought of as you know being under a spell or, or, or seeing more than is there. But in actuality, for God to bestow this, for God to set out to enchant our minds towards something, is actually trying to get us to see things as they really are. Right? It's not a trick. It's for God to, uh, it's, it's one of the ways that God helps us to see things as he sees them so that we can learn the true nature of them. So what the Lord is doing in verses 13 and 14 is trying to give you a heightened view of the knowledge of wisdom. Yes, in some ways a heightened view of honey because if we know the Bible well enough, maybe every time we think about honey now or every time we taste honey, we'll think about these verses but the Lord desires us to have a heightened view of the knowledge of wisdom, the uh, or wisdom in, in general. I think ESV just uses one term there. Know that wisdom is such to your soul. Um, King James and New King James says the knowledge of wisdom. Uh, God desires to raise your uh, view of knowledge. Right? And children, this would include... Young ladies, it includes learning, education, right? So what God compares it to is honey. The knowing of wisdom, the gaining of wisdom, the growing in knowledge is to the soul as honey is to the taste. Y'all all right? Okay. So just as we are to think about uh, the goodness of the taste of honey, so we are to think about the goodness of uh, growing in wisdom, as it were. Right? And, and honestly, right. you know, education is connected to this, reading is connected to this, but ultimately it's the knowledge of God, right? Because that's the knowledge of God is what penetrates to the soul, right? Right? Uh, and when we conceive of the knowledge of God uh, in the way that Jesus speaks of it, it will begin to transform the way we live as Christians. Um, I was told one time, I don't know how true it is, I don't know how you would even verify it, uh, but it seems kind of like Pulp Fiction or whatever you want to call it, but uh, the most preached on verse of the Bible during the Reformation. How, how would you even know that? Right? Well, that's the throwaway line I've heard attached to this verse. But anyway, listen to how Jesus describes eternal life in John 17, verse 3. Of course, he describes it in many ways in different places. But this is what he says in John 17 when he's praying. He says, this is eternal life. 
speaking to his father, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So this is eternal life, Jesus, to know the only true God, to know him, right? To have knowledge of him. Think of that with verses 13 and 14 in Proverbs 24. Honey, right, as the sweetness of the taste. So we should think of our salvation as Christians, right? This knowledge of wisdom being to our souls as honeycomb and honey is to our taste. And it is good. You know this because you found it. And this is what Jesus Christ says eternal life is. Knowing God. And then in, uh, on this verse, Matthew Henry, uh, he says, Canaan, right? Remember the promised land was flowing with milk and honey, right? And honey was the common food of the country. Uh, Luke 24, verses 41 to 42 speaks of this. Uh, even for children, uh, the, one of the common foods was honey. Isaiah 7, verse 15 speaks of this. He says, thus should we feed upon wisdom and relish the good instructions of it. Those that have tasted honey need no further proof that it is sweet, nor can they by any argument be convinced of the contrary. So those that have experienced the power of truth and godliness are abundantly satisfied of the pleasure of both. They have tasted the sweetness of them, and all the atheists in the world with their sophistry, their their tricks, and the profane with their banter, They cannot alter their sentiments, right? Those comparisons he uses there, right? That that in honey, nobody can persuade you that honey either tastes bad or that it is like sour, right? Nobody could persuade that of you concerning honey. What could people persuade you of when it comes to wisdom? There's a question we could draw from what Matthew Henry says. Could anyone persuade you that truth and godliness are unsatisfying? I hope not. You wouldn't say that about honey, right? You ought not. (laughs) You've tasted the sweetness of truth and godliness, right? And that those are those kinds of uh, truths. Let's call them that. Those are the things that propel us in our days. Those are the things that get us out of bed in the morning with eagerness, with desire. Those are the things that encourage us to serve our families well, to go to worship the Lord well, that we have experienced not just the power, but the good taste of truth and godliness. You know the psalm, taste and see that the Lord is good. Even uh, to connect this to the Lord Jesus as well, and then we'll wrap up. In Isaiah 7, verses 14 and 15, Uh, One of the promises uh, concerning Christ's birth in the Old Testament says, Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Butter and honey shall he eat that he might know to refuse evil and choose that which is good. Butter and honey. Shall he eat that he might know to refuse evil and choose that which is good? Almost like the same spirit that wrote Proverbs 24 
verse 13, or at Isaiah 7. It's not almost the case, it is the case. So, we are, because we started a few minutes late, we'll go ahead and draw to a halt there. Um, That's covering four verses. That's about what we would normally do in our studies of Proverbs in the past. We've got a couple minutes for questions or uh, comments, if anybody has anything, or just anything you'd like to share in general. stories and examples in the Old Testament that are like that, that when you read them and you don't think with a very open mind like that, what else could they mean, right? I mean, of course it would have to point to something like that, right? Certainly, I mean, that's not wrong in any way to, to think of the scriptures that way and to think of Christ and out of him comes uh, the land of flowing of milk and honey, but anything else? Yeah, right. If you're aware of something you didn't do it, you could have done it, and that is now on you. Sure, yeah. So like the end of the verse, because in verse 12, it asks three questions. Um, he, who consi- he who weighs the hearts, does he not consider it? He who keeps your soul, does he not know it? And will he not render to each man according to his deeds? Right, so I, I take that as drawing attention to the fact that... Um, not only did God know it, but he's pointing out by asking you this question that you knew it, and you're going to be judged for it. Now, go ahead. Is this always going to be someone that's like in a sin issue, or could it be something else? Or So, is it going to be something that's like a sin issue? Yeah, so say the person is like in sin, and you were to go to them, and, and you're talking to them, that kind of thing, and like be careful not to fall into it yourself. Is it always going to be like an issue like that, or is it also like caring for your family, you see that they're in need? Yeah, so um, I, the, the principle I was drawn on with the family would not necessarily always involve sin, yeah. right? Because you're, you're trying to just care for those who can't ultimately care for themselves in the way that you can, right? So, because that's the, that's the weight of this, these two proverbs is that you can provide the help, right? So provide it, right? But... As far, even uh, in a more general way, when you think about addressing someone and trying to uh, rescue them or whatever, there's going to be, like, it's a slope, right? It could be very early on where you've, you've been through something like this in your life and you know the pattern. And you can say, like, I see you're doing this. I mean, it could be somebody your age, somebody older than you even. And, like, you know, you're just able to say, I'm going to warn you about this because I know where this goes, but it could also be when they're at the end of the rope and they've literally got one foot in that, that pit of sin. Right? So I think it's both and to what you're saying. Does that make sense? Yeah. 
Is there ever a time where you would not talk to someone based on like age differences? Say like if it's someone like, I, I don't know, we just had some issues in the family. Like people were like, don't be saying this, you need to respect whoever this is. Um, you can't go and say that to that person. Yeah, so I mean, obviously there, I wouldn't say there's clear lines to draw on that and it's gonna be a case by case issue. Um, the weight of these proverbs again would be though upon those not just that you uh, are in the presence of, but those who are your responsibility, right? That's and sh- let's just use an example. Your husband's parents aren't your responsibility in the way your parents are, right? So, would you be able to freely speak with his parents as you would yours? Probably not, and you probably shouldn't, right? Um, would it be wrong to do it? Probably not necessarily, but it probably wouldn't be as impactful. Well, if there was someone else that could do it instead, like say right. a sister or, mm-hmm. or whoever. Yeah, okay. yeah. So one of the dangers with, with taking any verse of Scripture about like speaking to others about sin is to think that like God is putting all the pressure on you and only you to be the one to address it because you feel convicted about it. Right? There are ways to do those things. Right? And... Uh, Respect is important when you're talking about your elders, you know, honor your father and mother and all those things. But I also want to do away with the idea that um, youthfulness implies unintelligence or that youthfulness implies um, just a lack of wisdom in general. Like Paul literally told Timothy not to let them look down on him because of his youth. Right? That doesn't mean that, you know, if you're young, you're, you're wise automatically. But, like, don't be frightened if you know the truth and have this relationship with someone that you can share with them that you, you clearly see they either don't know the truth or aren't living according to it. But there are, you know, especially when you talk about family, it does get delicate. But, so. One of the things that it does point out is it seems like it's very clear that you're holding them back. You can see that you need to hold them back. Mm-hmm. It's very clear that you see something that needs correction or that you can assist it, mm-hmm. right? So that that kind of brings the burden in itself because it, otherwise you're you're pushing that off, you're rejecting mm-hmm. what you know it needs to be, needs to be done. Right. So there's I think there's clear instruction like you it's it's not something that you're not going to see. Yeah. No, that's a good point. That that opens my mind to even something more that I didn't really say, but. It almost makes it seem like there are only there's only one person seeing what's going on in verse eleven, and it's you. Yeah. Right. Not to say that you know this is only applicable in situations where you're the only witness. That's, that's not what I'm saying. But that, as Sean said, it's it's going to be obvious. Right. These are the situations that are, um, you know. Or you're when, the only one that's close enough to that person that sees it. They can talk to them. Sure. Just, yeah. yeah. I mean, because if your excuse is going to be Surely uh, we didn't know, or I didn't know. Then God is implying that you did, right? Not that it's going to be something that's really up for debate. It's going to be more obvious. Yeah. This is how it gets with Proverbs, though. When you start talking about applying it, like just it spreads out. But good questions. Yeah. Even the fact that there's the the knowledge of wisdom or whatever, right? And that's given to the Christian, basically. As, as a gift, like without without that given to us, we wouldn't have it. Mm-hmm. Like we, 
we are given wisdom through, through Christ. So we might see, well, we will see differently. We'll see wisdom differently mm-hmm. than, than that. Yeah, that's good. I mean, those who have that knowledge of that understanding of wisdom, that it does bring uh, goodness and sweetness uh, to the soul. Right? We who have that are those who can ultimately apply Proverbs eleven the best or twenty four eleven the best. Right. All right. Anything else? Am I over there? All right, let's close in prayer.